when uh, I was in high school, uh, well, first of all, uh, we're, we're beginning a new series today on parables, and because it's summertime and there's a lot of vacations, and in our case, there is a, a wedding and a honeymoon happening, uh, we are switching uh, to, our, our admin is getting married today, and she's going to be gone happily uh, for the rest of July and half of August. Yeah, all the PTO is gone, right? But we're, we're happy for Holly. Uh, and so instead of, and she, she makes our bulletins that you get every week. And so now instead of bulletins, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, we're doing these. How many of you got one, one of these from two of those great usher or welcomers out there? Those welcomers belong to me. If you didn't get one of these, we have a stack of them back there. Uh, the challenge is to hold on to this for the entire summer. Do you think you can do it? Eh, we'll see. Uh, uh, but we'll, if, if you take notes, if you think I say something that might be a little bit profound, which is rare, uh, uh, this is where you can write them down. There's lines, and you can take notes in here. It'll, it'll be fun. So these are our bulletins. I hope you can uh, enjoy them. I think they're cool. I have like 40 of these for a lot of things, and then one big one for all my meetings. And so uh, I live by these. Hopefully, uh, you'll be able to put these to good use. If not, they look cool. I, one time, I was going through a Goodwill, and I found some of these from another location in the book section. And I was like, oh, great. So theirs were green. Uh, if I see brown ones at the Goodwill, I'm going to know some of you decided to donate. And we'll, just, we'll have to take up with that a little later. Uh, in, in high school, a long time ago for me, uh, there was this class that I took. It was taught by the uh, by the baseball coach. He was also the offensive and defensive line coach uh, for football. And so I felt like it was okay that I took it. And, and it was art. It wasn't just art. It was like art, you know, art one, basic drawing. But then there was art two, graphic design, and art history. And these are my favorite classes. Now, I can't draw anything to save my life. So don't put me on your Pictionary team. But I was curious about it. I know there's a couple artists in this room that are like, oh, really? Yep, I, that was me. But I was curious about it. I liked it. I like going to art museums. This is the softer side of bread uh, that, that you're seeing now. Uh, but one of the things, Mr. Jenberg was his name. And we didn't call him Mr. We called him Jenberg, just, just his last name. That's all he wanted. Or coach, but pre preferred Jenberg. Uh, Jenberg did this thing in second period art class where he would looked the other way while a few of us collected money from around the, the room and went and got donuts for the rest of the class. And then he'd look the other way when we came back, and then there's donuts. And he'd be like, where'd those come from? Uh, this is one of the reasons I liked art. But uh, Jenberg had a way of teaching art where we would, we would study paintings for the first half of the class. Or not study them, but we would look at them. And, and he would have us look at them. Not just look at them, uh, but uh, make some observations. He, he wanted us to study the paintings in a way that we could maybe try and pick up what the artist was trying to portray in the, in the painting. And so he would have us look at facial expressions. What are, what's going on with this person? Are they happy? Are they sad? Why are they blurred and everybody else isn't? So you start asking questions. Are they agitated? Do they seem quiet? Uh, can you get a sense of, of what they're thinking? And we would study these paintings. Uh, and he, he would have us pay attention to how our eyes would flow through the painting. Where does your eye naturally begin and where does your eye end? And then he'd have us point out the lines that were all pointing to the focal point of the painting. And, and then he would say, is there anything going on in this painting 
that might be a social commentary given this artist's time of painting? What do you think they're trying to show you about their culture? Overall, in these art classes I took, we got to study a lot of maybe some feelings that normally when you walk by a painting, you go, oh yeah, that's cool. Uh, but he had us study them and see the various characters that were inside of each of these paintings. As we go through parables, we need to start approaching them the same way. There's various characters in these parables. There's various uh, contexts in which these parables lay, both what's going on socially, what's going on with the question that was asked that Jesus is answering, and also there's people inside of these parables that we need to pay attention to. There's characters. Jesus is telling these stories, which was a way of teaching back in those days, telling these stories, trying to prove to us a point. And not only us as the readers 2,000 years later, but the people who were hearing, Jesus is confronting an issue that is coming right front and square to him. And so we look in these parables, you can either look at them like, oh, cool story, or we can start to find ourselves in each of them. We can start to identify with characters. And what we'll find today is, is that the, the, these stories that are thousands of years old will also start to confront much of our thinking today. Last week, if you were around or if you listened online, we, list, we, uh, we looked at Nathan, one of the very first parables in Scripture, how he confronts David when David was in the whirlwind of sin. He confronts David when he's being held hostage by sin. And he tells him a story that disarms David and we reawakens David back to his original calling. And then he says that one phrase, David, you're this man in the parable, and David breaks down. And so this becomes one of our challenges as we look at these parables of Jesus. What person are you in these parables? Now, it's going to be easy to look at the one today and immediately think you're the hero because that's how we like to think, right? We're always the hero. We're never the villain. Uh, but let's be honest, it's not true. Sometimes it, it's okay to admit we're the villain. We're the person who didn't have all the answers. Sometimes we waffle back and forth. Sometimes you'll find yourself being the, the hero. Sometimes you'll find yourself being the villain. And it's okay to be on this pendulum going back and forth. And so today we're going to start by looking at Luke chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're just going to be there today. There's a lot happening in this passage. It's a parable that uh, is told in fiction, but what Jesus is describing is this very non-fiction thing that's happening right in front of him. As you flip through uh, uh, your Bibles and you look through chapter 7, there's a lot of uh, instances I think that Luke intentionally paints for us in the painting of this parable. First, he starts with the centurion who, who had his servant healed from afar, and, and Jesus makes this, this statement to this Roman guard and says, I've never seen such faith, even amongst the people who are supposed to be in, I've never seen so much faith as I see from you. And Jesus heals his servant. Then you move on, and then you see that Jesus raises the widow's son, and he tells her, don't cry, this young man is going to get up, which is a, a very significant thing for Jesus to say. For a woman who's a widow, this son was her livelihood. And so Jesus not only saves her son, he saves her life. And then you move on. And then you have John the Baptist start asking questions. Are you who you say you are, Jesus? And Jesus goes, what, what's going on, John? Do you see what's happening? The, 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 the crippled walk, the, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. I'm who I am supposed to be. Chill out. Everything's going to be fine. 
And then we get to this peculiar scene at the end of Luke 7. Jesus is invited to dinner. In verse 36, it says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, you're looking at this painting. Pretend we're all in my art class or, or Allison's art class. We're all sitting there. Who are the characters that we immediately see? There's a Pharisee. Luke is very, very pointed with this. He wants us to make sure that we know Simon is a Pharisee. Three times in two sentences. A Pharisee named Simon, or we'll learn his name Simon later. Uh, a Pharisee's house for dinner. A Pharisee invited Jesus and eating at the Pharisee's table. So there's a Pharisee here. There's also a woman. What do we know about the woman? We can, we can talk back. What do we? Sinful life. A lot of people like to say that this, uh, that this woman was some kind of prostitute or, or something like that. We don't know. It's an assumption. Uh, she could have just been somebody who just had a bad reputation. We don't know anything about her. We could, we could project a lot of things who we think she is. We don't know. It was a woman, and she did not have a great reputation around town. So now you have Simon, a Pharisee. A Pharisee had an awesome reputation. The religious elite, uh, they were the minority party in their ruling class, but they were the ones who carried the most respects. There was the Pharisees, and then there was the Sadducees. And the way you keep them apart is they're sad, you see. You, got, you like that? No? Okay. The Pharisees uh, were, were held to the law. They wanted to make sure everything was held by the law. And so they walked around and said, that's not fair. You see? Oh, my gosh. Right. And so you have Pharisees. You have Sadducees. I'm a dad. I make jokes like that. And so we're introduced to these two people who are sitting here. You have the religious class. And then you have the outcast. You have someone who has all of it together. And then you have someone who doesn't have any together. The, two, uh, they, uh, the, the, the Pharisees would have looked at this woman and said, why is she here? And we'll get to that because that's exactly what Simon does. If anyone in this world was close to God, it would have been the Pharisee. If anyone in this world, in this, in this painting, was far from God, it would have been the woman. Do you see the painting that, that Luke is setting up here? You have the extremes. Jesus is invited to dinner. Something about... It's easy to take these Pharisees and say they, have, they are evil, rotten people. Not always. Something in Jesus made Simon a little bit curious. He wanted to have dinner with him. Not all the Pharisees dislike Jesus. In fact, if you read through John 3 you find another Pharisee who is very curious of who Jesus is. His name was Nicodemus. Nicodemus ends up helping bury Jesus at the end of Jesus' life. And so you have some Pharisees who are open to this idea. Simon is curious about who this Jesus guy is, and he wants to find out more about him. And how do you find out more about somebody? You sit down and you have a cup of coffee. You have a meal. Simon wants to see if Jesus was everything that he said he would be. Simon is what we would call in today's vernacular a seeker. He's allowing for a possibility that Jesus might just be 
who he's been reading and studying for. He's been looking for someone like Moses, someone for Elijah, someone like Elijah, and he's wondering, maybe, maybe Jesus is that person, so let's come over and have a meal. Now, meals weren't just meals back in those days. Meals were, were signs that you're interested in this person. When you shared a meal with somebody, you shared life with them. You were accepting something about them. That's why it was such a big deal when Jesus had meals with tax collectors and sinners. Because why would you ever associate with those people? And so Simon is associating with Jesus. The meal becomes a moment of community in which everyone connects over a common place of hunger. But then at the meal are, are opportunities to share hopes and joys and find commonality in conversation and physical dialogue. It doesn't mean that you're going to agree with everything that this person says, but at least you see enough respect in them to have a conversation. Then you have the woman in here. We don't know about this woman. We don't know what she did. All we have are guesses, and, and, and all we know of is her reputation. We could tell by her reputation that Simon wouldn't be caught with her and would not have invited her to dinner. However, somehow, in some way, whether it's word on the street or she was walking by Simon's house, usually they ate outside, she's walking by Simon's house, she finds out that this Jesus that has healed the centurion's servant, that has raised the widow's son, uh, is having dinner with Simon. And so she sneaks in. She gets there before everybody does without even noticing. These two people couldn't have been more different. Simon is looked up to. She's looked down upon. Uh, he's the church leader. She would never darken the door of a church. She wouldn't be allowed to. He makes a living promoting standards. She made a living breaking them. He's the upper crust of society. She's the riffraff. He's hosting. She's crashing. Yet for some reason, Jesus was associated with both. And so in verse 38, it says this, Luke continues to paint. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now this is scandalous. Women in that day don't let their hair down. It would be sort of like walking out of your house naked. It's just you don't do this. Uh, teachers of that day, if they were holy like Jesus claimed to be, wouldn't have allowed this to happen. It's so it's, it's quite a scene, and poor Simon here doesn't know what to do about it. It's awkward for him. Here he's trying to figure out who Jesus is, and all of his internal thoughts are going crazy trying to figure this out. How does she get into this party was probably one of his thoughts. What is she doing here? And then Jesus is allowing her to do this to him. Doesn't Jesus know about her? And, and if, why isn't he stopping her? And I can't believe this is happening in my house. For a man like Simon, whose reputation is stellar, this is damaging to him. This is a picture of him because this is happening under his roof. And why isn't Jesus stopping it? All of this, as you look in the text, is an internal dialogue for Simon. He's not saying this out loud. He's shutting up. It's in his head. And then he learns a valuable lesson, lesson that we should all take notice to. Don't think thoughts you don't want Jesus to hear. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, self, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. 
Simon, curious about Jesus, wondering if Jesus is a prophet, has his answer. However, Jesus might not be a prophet that meets his standards, but watch what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, answered him. Did Simon say anything out loud? No. Jesus answered his thoughts. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. Then here's the parable. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One of them owed 500 denarii, the other 50. 50 denarii would be something like 500 bucks. 500 denarii could equivalent something to like $50,000. So you're thinking maybe a couple months wages versus a couple years wages. So you have someone who owes a little, someone who owes a lot. And then it continues. Neither of them had the money to pay back. So he forgave both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose, because he didn't want to give a definite answer, the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. And Jesus says, you have finally judged correctly. Then he turned towards the woman and said, Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You see, when you walked into someone's house for dinner, it was customary that you washed the dust off their feet. If not you, you would have a servant do it. It was scandalous when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. It would have been scandalous for Simon to wash his feet. So Simon should have had somebody to wash Jesus' feet, but he didn't. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. Now, it would have been a customary kiss. We see this in, later in the Gospels. It says, greet each other with a holy kiss. We, we don't do that anymore. You're welcome. Uh, but it would have been just a simple kiss on the cheek like the French do, right? It would have been some kind of greeting. Simon didn't do that. This woman has yet to stop kissing Jesus' feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Oil on your head was a, was a, a soothing or a cooling uh, way to take the heat off. It was, it was a, a way of, of making your guests feel a little bit more comfortable where they are. Yet this woman has an alabaster jar of expensive perfume, and she's putting it on Jesus' feet. Simon did nothing of that. In modern terms, uh, no one opened the door for Jesus. He had to walk in himself. No one took his coat. He was carrying it still, and no one shook his hand. I don't know who the biggest villain is in your comic book world, but Thanos and Marvel would have had better uh, manners than Simon did, or Count Dracula would have been more friendly here. Simon messed up. He didn't have any, any manners. Simon does nothing to make Jesus feel welcome. This woman, on the other hand, does everything Simon didn't. Now, we're never told her name. She never speaks a word. She was not invited to this party. She had no standing in the community. All we know is her reputation. She had a reputation around town and what everyone thought of her. Even Simon knew who she was. Jesus knew who she was. But it didn't stop her from coming, right? It would have probably been pretty vulnerable for her to even show up to this place. But like many who approach Jesus, especially in Luke's gospel, they don't care what other people are thinking. She's not there for Simon's approval, which probably would have baffled Simon because he wants people to have, he wants to give people his approval. Her moves are measured. Her moves are meaningful. Each gesture is extravagant. She puts her cheek 
to his feet, still dusty from the path. She has no water, but she has tears. She has no towel, but she has her hair. She wasn't just crying. In fact, the Greek word that's used here is, is, the, Greek, is the Greek word kaleo, which means she was weeping. There's a Greek word that means crying softly, uh, like, like what you would do at the end of like Band of Brothers or something, where you just kind of lightly tear up. That's not the word that's used here. She's weeping. Another way of saying it is that she rained tears on his feet. She opens this perfume, probably her only possession worth value, and begins to massage it into his skin. You'd think Simon, of all people, would know such love, would recognize what she's doing and see the devotion. Isn't he the reverend of the church? Doesn't he know this thing? Isn't he a student of scripture? He is. He's all of these things, but he's harsh. He's distant. You'd think the woman would have avoided Jesus. Why would she ever go see him? But she doesn't. She can't resist him. Her love is extravagant. Simon is stingy and calibrated. Simon is very careful. He wouldn't even answer directly Jesus' question. How do we explain the difference between the two of them? Was it training? Was it, was it education? Was it money? Because if it was those, then Simon totally outdistanced this woman. He would have had all of these lined up. He should have responded. But the only area where this woman outpaces Simon is when she discovers that she has something that, or she discovers something that Simon didn't. She discovered the treasure of Jesus. And Simon's not quite there yet. She discovered God's love, and we don't know when she received it. We don't know when it hit her. We don't know if it was earlier that day or if she's watching Jesus walk by or if it's something that she's heard. We don't know how she heard about it. We don't know if she overheard Jesus in the temple saying that God is actually merciful. We don't know if she uh, saw him raise the widow's son. We don't know. Did someone tell her how Jesus actually touched lepers instead of just keeping them at a distance? We don't know if, if, it, if it was because of who he called to be his disciples. We don't know. But she came and she received. And I'm glad she did. She came to the dinner party that night uh, and when Jesus hands her the goblet of grace, she drinks it, and she doesn't just taste it. She doesn't just take a little sip like that. She takes the lid off the cup and, and dumps it all over herself. She doesn't just do what Simon did and, and dip your finger in. I don't know if this is how you taste wine. I'm not a wine drinker. But take your finger and, and, and just kind of taste it. That probably totally destroys the glass of wine, so don't do it. But she doesn't just do that. Simon's over there doing that. She drinks so fast. I don't know if you've done this, if you've been so thirsty. Maybe you've been outside working and it's hot or, 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 or you're just parched from maybe you went for a run, how crazy that is, and you come back to your house and you get a big glass of water and you drink it so fast it just comes down the front of you. This is how she's drinking. This is what she's after. She drinks so heavily that the water of Jesus' grace spills all over her. She drinks until every inch of her is satisfied. She came thirsty, and she drank deeply. Simon, if we look at the other side of the painting, doesn't even know that he's thirsty. So while she drinks, he puffs. While she has ample love to give, he doesn't even want to give Jesus the time of day anymore. Why? 
people like Simon don't realize what they actually need. People like Simon don't know they need grace. Instead, instead of analyze, instead of receiving grace, they want to analyze it. And they want to be stingy with whom they give it. Now they might know the answers to all the questions and they might say the right words, but their hearts are different. People like Simon don't request mercy. Instead, people like Simon would rather debate it. Are you giving mercy to the right person? Is this how you should show mercy? Or, or is this follow my criteria of mercy giving? Jesus answers Simon and says this, Therefore I tell you, her sins have been forgiven as great love that she has shown. Her sins were forgiven before she did this. She's responding to it. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who's this that forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. And then he gives her a gift. You can go in peace. Luke sets up for this this painting where we as the readers get to compare two people coming to Jesus, one from far away and one who's close up, one who has a reputation and sinful, one who grew up in the church. Both of these characters needed the same thing. Remember the parable? Both people in the parable owed a, a, a sum of money. Both people needed to be forgiven. However, only one is fully aware of the need. It wasn't Simon, it wasn't that Simon couldn't be forgiven. Both people are, stand forgiven in the parable. And I think Jesus is setting up Simon and the woman in the parable. Both people receive the forgiveness of their debts. It's just that Simon doesn't think he needs to be forgiven. Simon isn't aware of his need. Yet she can't help but know hers. This is why she's doing what she's doing. The debt had been lifted, and this is the only feasible way to respond. How many of you have ever gotten something you never deserved? And then you get it, and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this happened. I walked into my, my school registrar one time expecting to have to write a check for, I think, $10,000, and that would have been school for me. And I was like, oh man, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I walk in, I get ready to write the check, and they go, oh, let's do some work here. And the financial aid lady goes down and, and she, oh, you work here, you do this, you do this. You owe $500. <laughs> what? You better believe I did a little dance on the way out. I played it cool, wrote that check and got out as fast as I could. But I didn't know if she was going to realize that there was a mistake. I was like, oh, I got to go. <laughs> Simon was an un uninvited guest who didn't know that he actually needed the forgiveness that this woman was seeking. Jesus gave her what she was wanting, but he gave her even more. He gave her peace. Look, your debt's been paid. You no longer owe this amount of money. It's this much, and don't worry about it. I got it covered. Imagine the turmoil that is lifted from her. She goes from being an outcast to being in. She goes from being someone with no standing, and now she has a standing with God. It's no wonder she had a response like this. We could land ourselves, as we look at this parable, as we look at this painting of Luke's, and we can land ourselves with various characters in this parable, and each one of these characters both demand a different response. There's Simon, and if you read this, you look at it and go, I don't want to be Simon. No one wants to be a Simon in this place, but there are times when we all land in Simon's court. 
we all wall people out. We all ask the question, how the heck did they get here? What are they doing here? Or even, I can't believe they're here at all. Those people don't meet our lofty standards. The people who go against our norms. Simon will likely never admit to this, but he thinks he's got this whole thing figured out. He's examining Jesus for a different reason. He's examining Jesus to see if he's right. He's been raised in the church. He's read his Bible. He's gone to the Bible camps. He's done the Bible school, Sunday school, the church thing. In fact, he's probably moved beyond them. Those are child's play to him. And many of us find ourselves in those places. We've been in church a long time. You can quote the scripture forwards and backwards. And you've moved on from scripture. Because scripture's, well, scripture's not always right, right? That's what we think. We start reading other theologians instead of reading the Bible. We, we think the scriptures are legalistic. And we move on from them. They're so limiting. We turned into the Pharisees of the day. We make rules about rules, which is what the Pharisees did. They had the law, and then they had the law around the law to make sure you didn't break the law. And so they had rules upon rules that were extra to the scriptures. And we've done this, both on the legalistic side and the ultra-liberal side. We make rules around rules having to do with culture and protection and everything. We've moved beyond the scripture. We've got into the court of our own opinions. This is where Simon is. You've changed your beliefs to match the times, even when others haven't. We think we're good, at least in our mind. We've got reasons for everything. We've got our arguments down pat. We know the stats. We know what everyone tries to say. Heard it before, and we moved on from it. However, in Simon's view, and in our view, on either side you're on, in all of the rightness, we found a way to disassociate from others who aren't as right as we might be. So you begin, you begin to focus on where people aren't meeting your standards and then they don't read and follow the same authors that you do. You might be curious about Jesus. However, Jesus needs to match your standards in order to follow him. So when someone expects, uh, accepts the response of this woman, you look at it and go, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. I can't associate with somebody who associates with that person or in today's world, that politic, or they voted for that person or about this issue. They don't believe the same things I believe. Use your imagination. There's plenty of ammo right there to think of. And we begin to separate. You can't be a Christian and think that way. I've heard that so many times on every angle today. We become Simons. That's the Simon response. Because he thought the same thing of that woman that night. Sometimes we have a way of only focusing on people's past records of right and wrong. Jesus shows us this. Jesus shows preferential treatment to see the potential of what love and forgiveness can do to a person's heart. And he sees love and forgiveness in this woman and sees the potential that she has. That's how Jesus confronts Simon. Some of us find ourselves in Simon's shoes today. And we'd be well verse to look at this passage and go, how am I like Simon? Where am I limiting grace to other people? Then there's the woman in here. It might be easy to say that we're all this person. We want to come to Jesus. And I totally know uh, that, 
that I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be invited. I understand that grace is a free gift. I can't earn it. I want to be the woman here. I want to be uh, laying at Jesus' feet. We get it. We're totally aware of our need. The response for you might be a little bit more challenging. It's one thing to know what you received. It's another thing completely in this today's culture to allow yourself to respond. Her response wasn't something that would go over well in any church today. Yet the love that she receives and the love that she has allows her to respond because she doesn't give a rip what people think. In college, I, I went to college in San Diego and it was down there. They had two Super Bowls in town. The Chargers didn't play in any of them because they were terrible. But uh, one year, it was the Packers, and I forget who the Packers played. But in the Super Bowl town, the week prior to the game, the whole city is a party. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. I was 19 years old, and, and we were walking around downtown prior to the big game, and we realized that there was a lot of pop-up concerts happening. And in San Diego that time, there were some empty alleys, where a venue would automatically just pop up in that place. And so we walked around, my friends and I. Uh, we needed something to do that weekend, and we thought, hey, maybe we can catch one of these pop-up places. And so we saw an alley, and we saw some trucks kind of circling this alley. So we decided to blend in. And we walked into this alley. It, I think the concert might have started around like 8 or 9, and we walked in at 6 and just sat in the corner and waited. Uh, and And... I, I, I don't know if it was lying, what we did. Uh, we snuck into a concert. Uh, was it lying? Maybe. Was it honest? I don't want to answer to that. Uh, but it absolutely worked. So we went down to the gas lamp area. We find this, uh, this weird alley. They're setting up a stage, and there's porta-potties. And we, hi we hide. We hang out. We look like we're doing things. Uh, we had no idea who was going to be playing that night. We just knew someone was, and we wanted to be there. And so we sat for a few hours. The gates went up, and then they put the chain leak fence outside, and then there was a bouncer, and we're like, okay, guys, we're in it now. We've done it. And then the lines started to come up, and then we saw the banners drop. It was a Budweiser venue. A Budweiser venue. I'm 19 years old. Everyone getting into this place is showing their picture idea and getting a wristband. I have neither and I'm here, I'm, I'm in trouble. And so we, we waited a little bit longer. The stage was getting set up. There was a drum kit out now. So we knew, okay, at least it's not, a, it's, it's not just a comedian. There's actually a musician going to be here. And we figured out who was playing, and, and we didn't, or we didn't know who was playing. We were afraid to ask because everyone else did, and so we just kind of played along with it. More and more people came in. More and more people had wristbands. And so my buddy Steve goes, hey, uh, why don't we go try and get wristbands? And so we try. We walked up and said, hey, we didn't get our wristbands. And the guy goes, here you go. Okay. Now, now we belonged. Pretty soon the lights went out. My buddy recognizes the song, and he goes, hey, I, I think we're about to see the Violent Femmes. And I'm like, I don't know who they are. And then I heard one of their songs like, oh, I know who they are. Yeah, okay, I know these guys. People around us, this was a big deal. Yet we were there. We weren't invited. We didn't purchase a ticket. We're standing 20 feet from the stage listening to a concert that we should have never, ever been invited to. It was, one of those, it was one of the best concerts I've ever been to, honestly, even though I didn't even know much about the band. Musically, it was, it was okay, 
but the sheer rush uh, that we were in there and didn't belong or didn't deserve to be made it even much better. I wasn't 21. I didn't pay a lot of money. I didn't win the radio contest. I didn't care. I was there. And I jumped around and acted like I belonged. I would argue that my friends and I had the best time at that concert more than anybody else in that room that night. Why? Because we weren't supposed to be there. But we were given a free concert. It was exclusive. It was, a fr it was free. I was 19 years old in a 21 and over event. And I was there with one of my friends, a couple of my friends. And we had the best concert ever. We let our guards down. And we started a mosh pit. And we just kept it going. We received something that we didn't deserve, and we made the most of it. Perhaps you're like this woman, and I feel like in that situation, I was like the woman in this parable. I didn't belong there, but I was there. And I could have stood in the back going, guys, I don't belong here. Let's go, let's go. Or I could engage and say, you know what, we're here now. Let's respond wisely. Let's not hold back. If we know the song, let's, let's try and sing it like that Perry dude does. Let's try and yell back. Let's dance around. Let's have fun. We didn't have a reputation to save that night. Perhaps you're like this. You realize grace. You understand grace. Perhaps you're afraid of what others might say if you actually sold out and went for it and worshiped without abandon, committed yourself to Christ. You're afraid of it. We're afraid of it. I'm afraid of it. So we hold our cards close. We don't want to be one of those wacky Christians, right? Undeserved grace deserves an unrestrained response, and perhaps it's time for us to respond without restraint. In worship, in following, maybe there's something that we have to give up. Maybe there's a calling that we need to take on. But, but you, you know what you have. You know what you ought to do. But something keeps holding you back. Either you've received the undeserved grace and you realize it. And you're afraid to respond. Or undeserved grace is sitting in your grasp. And you're too afraid and too calculated to accept it. And so you're like Simon. And you're analyzing it and you're stingy with it. And you don't want to give it away because it might cost you something. And as David hears from Nathan in that very first parable, which person are you today? Where do you land on this? Are you sitting in Simon's chair? Or are you sitting at the feet of Jesus with your tears because you've received something that you don't deserve? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you do give us grace. We don't deserve it. There's no way we deserve it. Yet you still give it to us. You reach it out for us. You hand it to us. And you say enjoy. And we have a choice. We can drink deeply. Or we could take a sip. And God, my prayer for myself and my friends here is that we come to you thirsty. That just a sip won't do anything. We need a gulp. We need to drink so fast and so big that the grace flows all over us, spills everywhere. It spills to the people who don't deserve it because we don't deserve it either. 
yet we have it. And so, Spirit, would you begin to identify who we are in this story, that we could be both. But may we drink deeply from your grace today. May we not be afraid to respond if it means singing at the top of our lungs, even though we're tone deaf, may we sing. If it means raising our hands in worship, may we raise our hands. If it means sitting silently, may we sit silently. May we respond how we feel fit. And God, may we not hold back grace. May we not be stingy with giving grace to people who we don't think belong. That woman walked away with peace. Simon walked away in turmoil. May we give grace as freely as we received it because we all need it. We all have debts. We thank you for stories like this. In Jesus' name.